So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to kind of finish up the Abraham narrative just for a few moments. And the slides that you're going to look at at first were on last week's handout that I sent to you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, we wanted to uh, move ahead to Jacob and the narrative that we find in Genesis. Next week, we want to talk about the Joseph narrative. And then two weeks from tonight, I want to talk just for a few moments about how Genesis shows up in the historical books of the Old Testament. So we'll take a look at some of those things that are found in Joshua, Judges, and so forth. Uh, then we'll close this particular study and um, uh, we'll move into something new uh, as we get toward the end of the summer and into uh, the month of September. So last week we were talking about Abraham and we had just come up to the part where Abraham believes that God told him to sacrifice Isaac. And of course, we know that Isaac is this child of promise. We talked a little bit last week about um, how the uh, Abrahamic covenant seems to be equally applicable to both Isaac and Ishmael. But after Isaac is born, uh, what we find is there's some parts in the text that shows the improbability of this happening. Uh, the first thing we see is he is named Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. And Sarah finds herself laughing that they could have a child at such an old age. What we find, though, is his birth sets some other things into motion. And after he's born, uh, Sarah takes the opportunity to banish Hagar and Ishmael, and God intervenes on their behalf. Now, after a certain amount of time has passed, it seems as though Isaac is a young man. And so uh, he's possibly in his teenage years, maybe even into his early 20s. We don't know. But in chapter 22, we find that Abraham believes that God told him to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice Isaac. And, and we saw last week already that Abraham was considered a law abider because he took the sign of the covenant circumcision. He had uh, his family circumcised as well. And then we see that he is kind of following the law that comes later. And I'll show you on the next slide that he's really kind of following the law of the firstborn. And just hang on to that for a moment. Uh, when we think about how Abraham, this law abider, is about to kill his son Isaac, we know that the book of Romans chapter 4 makes a big deal about the fact that Abraham was considered righteous in the eyes of God, and that he believed that God was going to hold true to the promise that he made to him. So it doesn't say uh, so um, outrightly, but implication theologically is perhaps Abraham thought that uh, Isaac would be raised from the dead to continue on the promise. What we find is that Abraham passes uh, the test, unlike Adam in the Garden of Eden, and um, the unnerving part of this whole episode, I think, is two things. Number one, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his child, and number two, 
couldn't God have given Abraham a different type of command as a test? Uh, we're told in 2 Kings 16.3 that God hates child sacrifice. So why would God require this? So Abraham uh, is about to sacrifice Isaac when God intervenes and does provide a ram that's caught in a thicket. But the question that rolls around in my mind is, why would Abraham do such a thing? And here's another hint that the book of Genesis is probably a later document than one we often think of, because there is a law that is unfolding in the book of Exodus, chapter 13, verse 1, and verses 11 through 13, where it says that uh, God lays claim to the firstborn, whether it is a child or an animal. And so in, um, I'll just read you this one verse. It says in chapter uh, 13, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. And so this is something that will be kind of a part of Torah law. And we find that Abraham already is kind of following it and obeying it. And uh, later we find as the progression of a revelation takes place, we find that an animal is substituted for the human, but this doesn't occur until after Mount Sinai when the law is given to Moses and the people of Israel. But nonetheless, what's taking place is interesting. Abraham seems to be expressing a faith that God either won't actually make him go through with it, or as I mentioned, Romans chapter four, perhaps God would bring Isaac back to life. In chapter 22, verse 8, it does say this, uh, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and the two of them went on together. So was Isaac lying to, I mean, was Abraham lying to Isaac, or did he really believe that God was going to supply? So these are a lot of questions in um, an episode that uh, leaves most people a bit uncomfortable with God's call on him and Abraham's willingness to uh, kill the very son that he had waited so long for and was actually a miracle child in old age. So do you have some thoughts there? Any comments on that? I read something. Can you get a little bit closer to the mic, Brenda, please? I'm not even sure where my mic is. Can you hear me? Yep, that's perfect. Yeah. Okay. I read something once. I, I don't remember where or if I heard someone speak on this, but they said that Abraham was a pagan and it was not uncommon at that time for child sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So this episode, the real purpose of it was to let Abraham know that God found child sacrifice unacceptable and off limits. So he presented that whole experience to Abraham, then told him no. 
I don't want this. So the whole the whole object of the story was really to let the, the nation of coming from Abraham know that they did not he did not want them to do any child sacrifice. I think that is the lesson in the end. I I really do believe that's true, and that may be the test is um, is whether he's going to step away from his pagan roots, you know, that type of thing. That, that's good, good comment. Thank you. Other comments? Okay. So there's one more part of the Abraham narrative that's kind of strange. And I want you to turn to this passage. It's in chapter 14. And there's a man that shows up all of a sudden here, um, when Abraham is going to rescue Lot from uh, being captured by some ongoing skirmishes that are taking place around Sodom and Gomorrah and other uh, parts of the surrounding territory. Um, what we find here is as Abraham rescues Lot from his situation, uh, it says in verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Kedolo Omar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then, and here we're introduced to someone right out of the blue, uh, not introduced in the Genesis narrative at all. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high, and he blessed Abraham saying, blessed be Abram uh, by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and, the, and keep the goods for yourself. Obviously, this is spoils of war. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord, God most high creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say I made Abram rich. So there's this interaction with the king of Sodom. There's this interaction with a guy by the name of Melchizedek. And um, as quickly as he shows up in Genesis, he disappears. Um, what's fascinating is the two offices, if you want to call it that, that he holds is he's a king, number one, and he's also recognized as a priest. So he's the king of Salem, which will later in the Old Testament text become Jerusalem. And then he's the priest of God Most High, El Elyon, uh, recognizing Abraham's God. Now, when Abraham comes back from rescuing Lot from captivity, he meets up with Melchizedek, and then he pays him a tithe, which is fascinating. Um, maybe he's giving this tithe uh, because he recognizes his kingship and his priesthood. We're not really told, but uh, it's important for uh, the readers of the uh, book of Genesis to understand that 
Melchizedek is only mentioned two other times in the entire Bible. And one of them is in Psalm 110, verse 4, where David uh, is uh, told that he is going to be defined both as a king in a secular term, but he also plays this priestly role as well. So that's important to keep in mind here. Uh, This man, Melchizedek, uh, will become the model of a different kind of priesthood. And so I was kind of thinking about this a little bit more. Uh, When the land was divided up among the uh, sons of Joseph, which that's our narrative for next week, uh, it's interesting that the tribe of Levi, which is the priestly tribe, is not given any land territory. But what we find is that the, um, the tribes that go into captivity, the ten tribes to the north, um, they go to Assyria and they never return. The two tribes to the south are Judah and Benjamin. They will go to Babylon for approximately 70 years, and a remnant of theirs will return to Jerusalem. So I was thinking, maybe the importance for um, the nation of Israel was to establish a different line of priesthood, because we're not real sure what happened to the tribe of Levi through these invasions and these captivities. And perhaps what we see taking place, both in Psalm 110 verse four, is trying to show that um, it doesn't have to be a a Messiah that comes, uh, that carries both the kingship position and the priestly position, doesn't have to come from the tribe of Levi. So having said that, Uh, Go to the uh, book of Hebrews, chapter 5, just for a moment. Keep your thumb in Genesis. Go over to the New Testament, Hebrews, chapter 5. In Hebrews, chapter 5, Melchizedek reappears. And he will appear in chapter 5, and he will appear in chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. So in chapter 5... It says in verse one, every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Now, hang on to that thought there, that he is selected from uh, from men, and he is not sinless. He has his own weaknesses. Um, and it says, verse three, this is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And then he goes on, and the writer, whoever the writer of Hebrews is, um, talks about Christ. Verse four, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, and then he quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is the 
the first line of thought here that because Melchizedek shows up and disappears without beginning or without end, the writer of the book of Hebrews says that's the kind of priesthood Jesus has. He is eternal in nature. He's not a man from the tribe of Levi. He's not a man of weakness. And he's not like the priests from the tribe of Levi that has this um, tendency to die. In other words, uh, it's not a priesthood that is residing in one person forever because they're human. So with that, he then skips in chapter six of Hebrews and then reemerges to Melchizedek in chapter seven. And it says here, look at chapter seven, verse one, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. So two offices are combined there. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. So it's this idea that he carries and embodies this idea of both righteousness, doing what's right, and establishing peace. But look at verse 3. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. It seems like the writer of Hebrews is trying to make the case that we need a better high priest than the Levitical priesthood. Jump down to verse 11, same chapter. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still a need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. And there's the other thing. Because he's a priest after a different order, uh, people are no longer under the Old Testament Mosaic law. They are following a better law as represented in Christ. Verse 12, for when there is a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. So there's a change that's going on here taking out the Levitical priesthood and establishing a different type of priesthood. All of that is based on that short little paragraph out of Genesis chapter 14, which I just find remarkable that it becomes such a big deal in the book of Hebrews. Uh, but here's this mysterious Melchizedek that becomes an important part of the New Testament um, uh, fulfillment of the law and the replacement of the Aaronic priesthood from the tribe of Levi uh, with Christ. So I just wanted to mention that because, you know, that all of a sudden shows up in Genesis and it's out of the blue. I mean, where did that come from? I mean, it, it's just kind of, and it's inserted uh, at a place where uh, Abraham now has to rescue Lot uh, from a situation that he's in. And Abraham somehow recognizes that Melchizedek is greater than he is. And that's the whole purpose of him paying a tenth or a tithe of some of the th uh, spoils of war that he got out of this battle. So thoughts there? Do you have any comments, 
questions on that, that can be a little bit confusing, but um, you know, it's, it's there in the text and you know, the editors of Genesis felt it was important enough to kind of prep for the future. And in my mind, I'm wondering, is it because the Levitical priesthood went into captivity uh, and did not return? I can't prove that, but it's a, it's a question that comes into my mind. Any thoughts or comments there? Okay, so we're going to finish up Abraham's narrative, and we're going to we're going to talk a little bit about Jacob. And if we get through all of it, great. If we don't, we'll do what we did uh, tonight. We'll come back to it at the beginning next week. So, the Jacob story is found in ten chapters of Genesis, chapters twenty-five through thirty-five, and um, that is pretty substantial compared to the fact that. Isaac, his father, is really only given one chapter in the book of Genesis. So lots about Abraham, very little about Isaac, lots about Jacob, and lots about Joseph. Now, we're introduced to Jacob uh, on his birthday. And if you come to uh, Genesis chapter 25, what we see taking place is Isaac and Rebekah, they have twins, and these uh, twins um, are named uh, Jacob and Esau. And in the birth of these twins, there are two nations that come from their lineage. Uh, for Jacob, his descendants will become Israel, and for Esau, they will become the Edomites. Now, I think you know the pretty much the basis of the Jacob Esau story. You know that even when they are born, um, what we find is they have a different complexion to them. One is smooth, one is hairy. Um, look at verse 24. It says here, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb and the first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, and Esau may mean hairy, uh, but eventually it will mean Edom. Uh, then it says here, verse 26, after this, his brother came out, and then we're given an extra explanation here. With his hand, he was grasping Esau's heel. They're already at conflict in the womb. Mm -hmm. So he was named Jacob. And Jacob means to grasp the heel. So um, I think of Native Americans, you know, you think about some of the names that you read about in Native American history, Sitting Bull, uh, you know, the, the event becomes the name. And that's what happens here with Esau and Jacob. Um, and what we find taking place is this becomes the setup for two groups of people that's going to have an important part later in the chapters of Genesis. But what we find taking place is they grow, obviously. And as Isaac gets older, uh, his eyesight begins to go. And uh, he is getting sicker and weaker. 
and um, he wants to give a blessing to his sons. And when Jacob and Rebekah hear about this, since Esau is the older brother by whatever, a minute or two, uh, he is the one that would get the blessing of the firstborn. And what it will take place is they will come up with a scheme uh, whereby Jacob can get the uh, blessing of the firstborn. And so here we see two different types of people. Uh, we see that Esau um, goes out, he hunts one day, uh, comes back, he's starving. Uh, Jacob uh, rigs this thing to say, sell me your birthright. Uh, he says, well, I'm starving. What good is my birthright? It's not going to fill my stomach. And so they make this agreement and Esau sells him uh, by his actions, his birthright. And um, then when it comes time for Isaac's blessing, uh, Jacob will deceive Isaac by making him think that he is Esau and not Jacob. So Isaac gives the blessing and later Esau comes in and says, okay, I'm ready for you to give me the blessing. And, um, and all of a sudden Isaac wakes up to the fact that he's been deceived and his blessing has already been given to Jacob rather than Esau, the younger versus the older. And then what we find is that Isaac will also give a, a blessing to Esau as well, but it, it's not nearly as a prominent of a blessing as was given to Jacob. So that's a lot of the background that we find here. But the setup for all this is what comes later. Um, what we're told is it seems as though the Edomites, which are descendants of Esau, are in subject to the Israelites for many, many years until the Edomites finally revolt. And you can see the cross reference right here in 2 Kings 8.20. Uh, they finally revolt against the Israelites. They set up their own king. So there's this animosity that is going on between these two boys over the course of most of their life. And their descendants carry on this animosity. This becomes really apparent when um, in chapter 28, after um, the blessing has been given to Jacob rather than to Esau, uh, Jacob fears for his life and he thinks that Esau is going to kill him. And so he's going to flee and it, we're told that he goes to Beersheba, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Uh, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. So he takes off. And as he takes off, he's going to go at the, at the um, advice of his mother to Uncle Laban's house, where he is to find a uh, wife. And if, uh, if you come back to verse one of chapter 28, it says here, so Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, do not marry 
a Canaanite woman. Keep that in the back of your mind, okay, just for for a few moments. That, uh, there's a subject that comes up. It's really on the heels of Brenda's question last week, and that is Jacob is, his name is going to be changed to Israel, but the family from, the, uh, from Abraham, as you remember, she mentioned, uh, they're really Babylonians because they come from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is another word for the Babylonians. So um, this idea of the Canaanites is going to come into play when there is the question, what are the true origins of the nation of Israel? So just keep that in the back of your mind for a moment. So um, while Jacob is not to marry a Canaanite woman, Esau does. That's what's interesting. Esau ends up marrying a Canaanite woman. Uh, he travels to Haran. He goes to Uncle Laban's. And, and on his way, he has a dream. And as he's fleeing, uh, he spends the night. And it tells us here in um, verse 11 he takes one of the stones there and he puts it under his head and lays down to sleep. Now that does not sound very comfortable to me, but he has a dream, verse 12, in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So there's this portal between heaven and earth and what is the purpose of the dream? We're told in verse 13, there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Uh, your descendants, excuse me, will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I'll watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What is that? It's the Abrahamic covenant all over again. Now it's being reiterated to Jacob. He is the one that's going to carry on the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. So uh, the vision that's given to Jacob is in spite of his shortcomings. He's a deceitful guy. Eventually, it's going to come back to bite him. He's going to be deceived. Uh, when, he, when he goes to get a wife, he, there's one he really loves. There's one that is given by Uncle Laban. That's the older of the two. And I'm talking about Leah and Rachel. And um, what we find is that he has this dream here, and then he names this place that he has this dream. If you jump all the way down to verse 19, the place is called Bethel, which means uh, the house of God, the house of God. I met God here. And then Jacob makes a vow uh, that if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and give me food to eat, and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. It, all of a sudden the tithe shows up here. We, we saw that 
just a moment ago in the Abraham story. So it's fascinating here that um, now my father's house, he, if he gets me safely back there, then this, uh, this God who appeared to him in the dream will be his God. So there's kind of like a conversion that's going on here. And, um, and he responds to it by giving, he promising anyways, giving a tenth of all that uh, he prospers by. So, okay, that's kind of the groundwork for this, but you have questions before we move on. All right. So first he has a dream and then it's interesting that um, he has a wrestling match next. And uh, in chapter 32, what we find taking place here is, we come over to chapter 32, um, he's told that Esau's on the way to meet with him. And um, Jacob gets a bit nervous uh, that Esau's coming and he's going to prepare himself uh, to get ready for what he thinks is going to be a war, a skirmish with his brother. And uh, we're told in the text um, that this one night, um, well, let me back up a second. So the messengers uh, that report to Jacob, verse six of chapter 32, uh, they do some reconnaissance. And when they do, they come back with the message. We went to your brother Esau and, and now he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. That sounds like, it sounds like war is coming. So in verse seven, it says, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. Um, Jacob's thinking is, well, they, they can't chase both. Uh, if I'm gonna lose some of my family, we'll send some in one direction, some in another direction. Um, verse eight, he thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. And then Jacob prays. Oh, God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, oh, Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. So um, he is holding out that he can go back, and, and yet Esau stands in the way. Verse 11, look, he prays, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. So he's in a lot of turmoil there. And as he's in all this turmoil, what we see taking place is that he needs another vision or he needs another promise. He needs some assurance of some sort. And um, jump down to verse 22. That night, Jacob got up. And he took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons, he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. 
And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So this is that great mysterious moment where just kind of like Melchizedek, there's this guy that shows up out of the blue in the text. And as he shows up out of the blue, what we find is they wrestle. Um, it says here, Jacob was left alone, verse 24, and a man wrestled with him all night long till daybreak. So we don't know what all of this is about at this point. This guy's another mysterious man in the Genesis text. Um, we find that Jacob puts up a good fight. It seems as though at least the text is saying they fought all night long. But when the man saw that he could not overpower him, that is Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. This is just very, very strange, really strange. Who is this mysterious man? And what is happening here? Um, then we're told that Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And the man asks this question, what is your name? Jacob, now remember it means one that holds on to the heel. It can mean a deceiver. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. His name has changed. And it will be later, not only the name of him personally, but the name of his descendants or this nation that is called Israel. So strange, a couple of strange things happened to Jacob. And it all seems to be some defining moments in his life in light of the fact that he was a deceiver, he was a character, he was a manipulator, he's all these things, and yet he's the one that is given the repetition of the Abrahamic covenant. So um, before I go on to the next text, any thoughts on, on this at this point? So now here, here's the question. His name is changed to Israel and the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, indicates that this is the start of this nation that is still named Israel to this very day. But is this the start of this group of people? That's the question in scholarly circles. Jacob's name's changed to Israel means, as we mentioned, one who struggles with God. But while that seems to be the self-identification of this group of people who struggle with God and they will wander and they will wander their way through the whole Old Testament. Um, Jacob will name this place, just like he did Bethel Peniel, which means the face of God, which is to be a perpetual reminder of this divine encounter that he has. But Jacob will walk here on out with a limp because his hip was touched or broken or 
injured, uh, those type of things. And it seems as though this becomes the self-identification of this nation, that they're always wrestling with God. They're always walking with a limp. And yet they hold this promise of the Abrahamic covenant of a land and a people. And so finally, after this encounter, Jacob meets up with his brother Esau. And as it turns out, Esau has grown up some himself. And there is no battle that takes place. And there's this reunion that takes place. Esau, it turns out, um, has done all right for himself. Uh, uh, and um, he has this, this entourage of 400 that's with him. And, and um, Jacob was trying to bribe him. If you read in the text, he sent some gifts ahead and so forth. But um, Esau refuses them because he's doing fine. So that's kind of where we're left. And then you get into another strange chapter, Dinah and the Shechemites in chapter 34 before it returns back to Jacob. So there's all these interruptions. And, um, and the key question I think that's important here to ask is, well, what is the identity and the origins of Israel as a nation then? So let's keep in mind Brenda's comment from last week. Abraham was a Babylonian. Um, and then I told you to keep in mind the Canaanites. Um, that they were, uh, Jacob is told not to marry a Canaanite woman. Esau ends up marrying a Canaanite woman. Um, but the Old Testament suggests that Israel originated as a group of migrant slaves who escaped from Egypt, and that's the story that's found in Exodus. It seems as though scholars, though, have been able to trace the origins of the people that settled in the Promised Land, and they're called later Canaanites, from the lowlands um, as they move up into the highlands of Palestine. So you almost have like a secular accounting of where the Israelites came from. And then you have a biblical accounting and they don't match up real well. And um, as a rule, modern scholars um, don't think that the Bible's account of Israel's early history provides a full or accurate portrait of Israel's origins. Um, so don't let that don't let that upset you in any way. It just is that there's more to the story probably than what we're being told here in Genesis, which begs the question, why is the story told the way it is in the book of Genesis? Um, so there are two theories. One is Canaanite origins and the other is nomadic origins. And here's the Canaanite theory, and this is mostly archeological and historical scholars. They believe that there's a group of people that lived in the lowlands uh, of the Palestine area, and that the Egyptians uh, were very hand heavy handed and oppressive in those lowlands, and that this group of people moved north into the highlands of Palestine 
And these are the people that then eventually become the Israelites. Um, you see point number two here, because uh, the control that uh, Egypt had over these people was very systematic in the lowlands. Um, it was believed that some of the Canaanites that were living in the lowlands migrated up into the hill country to escape Egyptian tyranny. And as they did, what's interesting is that the original Israelites were kind of dropouts eventually of Canaanite society uh, and we're trying to break away from Canaanite culture. So, um, and even their name kind of reflects this a little bit. The name Israel, E-L, reflects the high position of El, which is in the Canaanite pantheon. So this is kind of the archaeological and historical portrait of how the Israelites moved to the highlands. They take a Canaanite god, and they want to break from the pantheon of gods and Canaanite culture, and they create their own culture, and yet still retain the name El, uh, which is a part of their name. Now, the what we just read about Jacob, it uh, comes at the beginning of more of what's called the nomadic origin or the nomadic theory. And in the Bible, there appears to be no memory presented where Israelites originally hailed from the Canaanite lowlands, but the story begins with Jacob and his family eventually goes to Egypt. Remember uh, what we will find is Jacob sends his sons to Egypt because there's a famine in the land and they need food. Um, so, a caveat here, I think, is important, and that is, when we look at the Bible, we're not necessarily looking at the history of Israel um, in complete form, but probably more of a narrated type of presentation so that an identity can be formed that comes from Jacob and his 12 sons, and then eventually um, this group of people that cross the Jordan River in the book of Joshua and, and move into Canaanite territory. So um, it's a little bit complex. And I think um, what we find in, I think there's a, a scholar that helps us here that I'll show you on the next slide is that maybe the biblical text is not so much a historical text, but a pedagogical uh, text. That is, it's trying to teach the Israelites what kind of people um, they are to be. And uh, it begins with Jacob. It continues through uh, the 12 sons um, and then eventually into this land. But I just want you to be aware because um, a lot of times people, if you listen to pastors, you know, they kind of take the text and say, oh, this is the straightforward history. But I just want you to know there's a tension that the archaeological and historical elements 
from scholars, and these are secular scholars as well as obviously religious scholars as well, that say, no, there, there's more to it than that. So let me stop there and see if you have some questions or some thoughts or concerns. So here's my take. I think what Genesis is doing through the Jacob narrative is really kind of transcending the historical events as a whole. In other words, there's always a history within history. And what I mean by that is when you talk about the history of our own nation, you could talk about the frontier. You could talk about the colonies. You can talk about Native Americans. You could talk about uh, those who are who headed west to find gold. Um, in other words, how our history looks probably depends upon what lens you're looking through. And I think that's probably true with all history. Every history has kind of sub-histories to it. And I think what we have here in Genesis is a sub-history for a particular purpose. And the particular purpose, I think, is to create the identity of what an Israelite really is. They start with Jacob, go through the 12 sons, and then when you find a group of people coming back from Babylon, they've been there 70 years, their children uh, obviously grew up in Babylon. They are accustomed to the culture of Babylon. How do they, what is a good catechism, I guess, that will help them to become true Jews again, that are faithful to God and are keeping the covenant, number one, and the law that is given later on. So these accounts probably reflect more of a later monarchical period that has developed over a long period of time. And what takes place is the biblical account is looking through a particular lens. And the most important part of what we're looking at is to reestablish Judah and Jerusalem as, as the capital and the line of David as the kingship so that they can reestablish that which they lost in captivity. Does that make sense or have I lost you 45 minutes ago? Hmm. Okay. So here's this guy, Jacob Wright. Um, he's a professor of Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And he is the one that has suggested that the Hebrew scriptures that we have in the Old Testament uh, worked in response to their defeat, both Israel to the north to Assyria and Judah to the south to Babylon. And he believes that the, they collected the earlier writings and then they began to shape them as a roadmap back to form the community that they had lost. And so you can see here uh, in bold that uh, the Hebrew scriptures kind of serve as an educational curriculum that creates shapes and molds people in the aftermath of their defeat. And um, when you think about it, when we think of Jewish people today, we don't think 
of Judaism, the religion, only, but we are also thinking of the Jewish culture as a whole. So you can have secular Jews that keep the Passover, keep the high holidays, observe the Day of Atonement, all those type of things, because it's part of their whole culture. It's not just a part of their faith. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So maybe the Hebrew scriptures are helping to reform that culture that they had lost. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but does that help? You have some questions there? So that puts kind of a new light on the whole Jacob narrative, doesn't it? Um, it it's, it's not just kind of a simple, straightforward history of the nation of Israel. It's very specific to get people later back on track to the Abrahamic covenant, to the type of people that they are revealed to be through the law that is given to Moses and, uh, and uh, so forth. Well, it's something for you to chew on, right? And to think about. Yep. And, um, you know, you can you can think about that it, and you'll need to rethink about that several times because you won't get it the first time through. But it's, um, I just wanted to show you that it's, uh, it's a fascinating book, the book of Genesis and what it does and what it sets up for later. We were, we were watching a show last night it's on nat geo and um this guy goes out and investigates different biblical uh stories and he's right now in um exodus and he was doing the parting of the red sea mm -hmm. he found stuff that showed that it could have been the reed sea and he went back and he, he proved it scientifically that the Israelites could have crossed at a totally different spot, mm -hmm. you know, going a more direct route. And because when the winds really blow hard, it separates this kind of very shallow lake mm -hmm. that has a lot of reeds going. Mm -hmm. Kind of an interesting little series. Yeah. I think you can gain a lot from um, programs, whether it's National Geographic or the History Channel. Um, sometimes um, Christians dismiss that type of thing and say, oh, that's just a secular way of looking at it. But it, they provide a lot of research and they provide a lot of good thinking um, and it doesn't diminish our faith one bit. Um, it, it just helps us to understand the complexities of when you're dipping your toes into ancient history, uh, there's a lot to it. And it's not an easy thing to, you know, to, to come to a conclusion on. But it, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, it helps us to understand that uh, the Bible is doing something very specific and kind of sits as a subset of world history as well. And um, 
and that's fine. Um, doesn't bother me a bit, even if uh, some things are found or said that, you know, I've never thought of or potentially could be a threat to, you know, what I've been taught or that type of thing. So it shouldn't scare any of us, really. It's just one of those things that, you know, it helps. It's knowledge and it helps. That's what I liked about it. It actually proved that this situation did happen. It may mm -hmm. have not been what we call the Red Sea, mm -hmm. but the situation actually could have happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, here's a, an, another thing that's kind of interesting about, since you brought up that, uh, that particular episode, um, is, you know, the only place that we're really told about the exodus uh, from Egypt is from the scriptures. That None of that is recorded in, in any Egyptian uh, history. Um, so it, it's fascinating that, you know, something that traumatic could be omitted from the Egyptian archives. Uh, but it's, um, you know, I'm not saying that it didn't happen. All I'm saying is, the Egyptians didn't record about it. And the Ten Commandments said that the Pharaoh at that time had it stricken from the history. Yeah. Scroll. It could be. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you think about some sometimes things that make a nation look bad or uh or embarrassed. Um, you know, uh, could it could it, some, some things have happened that are washed aside uh, so that it doesn't look bad, you know, upon the country or whatever. So, mm -hmm. I, yeah, that's yeah. very possible. Other thoughts, other questions? Well, we're going to uh, close off our study for tonight at this point. But uh, two on that stuff. And, you know, if you, you have some questions that come up during the week, we can start with those next week before we get into Joseph. Okay, this is your last chance. Any last comments or questions? <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, thanks for hanging in there because. Thank you. Thank it's kind of tough, tough sledding sometimes, but you've, mm -hmm. you've done well, so. All right. We'll see you guys later. Okay. Have a All good right. week. Good night. Take care. Bye. Bye.